When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Coming up today, we'll discuss the future of Romelu Lukaku following the interview that saw him dropped from the Chelsea squad. The Athletic Simon Johnson and James Horncastle will join us. Adam Crafton with us as usual. Lucky for him, he was at Old Trafford last night, so he'll talk about Manchester United. And with the transfer window now open, we'll talk to our Newcastle writer, Chris Woff, who could be very busy uh, over the next month. Well, let's start the pod with Romelu Lukaku, who was dropped uh, for the Liverpool game following an interview where he said he wasn't happy with his role at Chelsea and would like a return to Inter Milan while still in his prime. Adam Crafton with us as usual, along with our Chelsea writer, Simon Johnson, and our Italian football writer, James Horncastle. Um, Simon, let let me start with you, because uh, one of the things that struck me in the Lukaku interview is that quite a few of the things that he said actually chimed with stuff that Thomas Tuchel said back in, I, I don't know, maybe around October time, about... Actually, they haven't managed to get their tactics right to get the best out of Lukaku. So in many ways, they've said similar things on the Chelsea side of things. Yes, and we've been saying it too. Uh, we've written a piece about it. Um, he, he also, um, just touching on the Inter Milan uh, side of things, he, he was honest sort of before the Chelsea transfer came about that he wanted to stay into Milan. Um, so that wasn't new either. It's just all been, it's a combination of being clumsily expressed and particularly the timing and Chelsea uh, nor nor his representatives even knowing about it. So inevitably, when your club record buy comes out and goes rogue like that, it's going to upset everybody at the club. Um, And particularly Tuchel, who, who must have been thinking... This is the last thing I need when I'm going through a bad run and ahead of a nightmare January fixture list, a huge game against Liverpool, that it looks like my my big buy is speaking out against me, even though what he's actually saying is is quite honest. What I didn't find, what I did find a bit odd with, with what Lukaku was saying and complaining about was that he's not been around, he's not been fit enough to start complaining about not playing very much. Um, And the timing of the interview, of course, did take place the day after the Manchester United game, where Thomas Tuchel did bizarrely only bring him on for the last eight minutes. You can imagine how much Lukaku would have wanted to play against his old club to prove a point. And I think the timing of the interview, it was just the perfect storm. Is this then, from, from Chelsea in the main, is this a... Is this a control issue? Not not necessarily Tuchel himself, but the club as a whole. Do they have a player there who has decided to go and do his own interview in his own time, off his own bat, without running it past, you know, 
Chelsea like like every Premier League club without running it past one of their twelve media officers. Yeah, I think it's both, Mark. I, I think it's I think it's control in terms of the club. It's, it's also highly embarrassing for the club. You know, they they've for the second time they've gone and bought Romelu Lukaku, except this time for a lot more money than the first time, and to have this big prize asset who they're paying an absolute fortune to flirting with Inter Milan, saying to Latera Martinez, you stay there, I'm coming to you. I want to join Inter Milan, still in my prime. It's highly embarrassing. And I can understand why they're sort of not very happy about it. But also from Thomas Tuchel's point of view, you can't have, you've got to send that message out there to the whole dressing room that you can't have players going off, causing this kind of unrest. Um, And if he'd let it go, what kind of um, example is that setting for everybody else? At the moment, they have a problem that they go off and speak to a journalist. With the caveat, of course, that we'd all love this interview. <laughs> As journalists, it's kind of weird. We have to separate it. From a Chelsea point of view, it's a disaster. From a journalist's point of view, this is what we want. And that's why you're seeing people write about, well, actually, a player being honest and speaking about how they really feel. That's what every journalist wants. So... As a journalist analysing the situation, you're kind of almost in two minds about what you want to say about it. At one hand, you're going, great, you've got a guy that actually wants to say how he feels, but you can totally understand why the timing of, of it has been a disaster from Chelsea's point of view. Let's just look at it from the Italian point of view. First of all, James, this was an interview that was recorded by Sky Italia three weeks before it went out. Do we know why they why they put it out when they put it out and why they didn't put out when they recorded it? Because in the whole of this process, that that's that's the bit I find the most puzzling. Absolutely, uh, we don't know exactly why it was released at uh, the time it was. Uh, I think Sky Italia tend to like to have something lined up for their Christmas break in City A, where they have they have a special, and this was a half an hour special. Um, and and that's the only reason I can think uh, really for it, because uh, why would you sit on something that is gold, if you like, uh, in the way that he was prepared to speak, but also out of fairness to the player who's let you in? Um, you know, why would you uh, release something which is dated uh, in in some respects? You know, his comments about him, his state of mind, how happy or not he is with Chelsea. Uh, how happy he is with the system. These are things that Lukaku, Lukaku has already addressed. And I think uh, subsequently, maybe after the Aston Villa game, you know, he spoke to to ESPN Brazil uh, on the sidelines after a game. He didn't invite them into his house as well. Um, just to say that he felt that they were making <laughs> some progress in terms of uh, Lukaku and Tuchel figuring out exactly what each other needs from one another. But does it surprise me that Lukaku spoke to Matteo Bazzaghi? No, it doesn't because, I mean, Matteo is is there at Inter's training ground every day. Sky Italia usually have, you know, two reporters for all the big clubs and, you know, they're outside the team hotel. Um, they travel with the team. They're very kind of closely aligned with, uh, with the clubs. Um, so that there's a relationship there doesn't surprise me. Uh, and, and likewise, uh, yeah, I mean, during the first lockdown in Milan, Lukaku was doing Instagram lives pretty, pretty frequently, you know, with, with, with some of his friends, Ian Wright, for example. Yeah, it would surprise me that some of those weren't, uh, that, that some of those were without the club's knowledge at the time. So he does have a bit of a history in, in that respect. So Romelu is, is 
he will tell you exactly what is on his mind. You know, he's always been like that. He wears his heart on his sleeve. I think that's one of the things that makes him one of the most interesting characters in football. But ultimately, this has come back to bite him. And then the other, the other thing from the Italian point of view, then, is what is his relationship with Inter Milan now? What is Inter Milan's relationship with him now? Reading stuff on The Athletic the last 48 hours... Actually, Inter Milan fans are not that well disposed towards him at the moment because he left. So is this is this an olive branch or is this is this trying to go back at some point? Well, I think he wanted to reach out with an olive branch, um, but it's been snapped really um, by by the ultras in the in the Kudvenord. They were less than impressed uh, when he left. Um, yeah, they. Uh, they felt that, you know, if you really care about the club, uh, particularly given the financial circumstances that they were in, particularly given his past statements, uh, including at the Euros, where he said, you know, he wanted to stay at Inter Milan, that he'd spoken to Simone Inzaghi, that, you know, he'd also spoken to his brother, Jordan, who'd played under Simone and kind of liked what he heard and could see himself still being there. To then leave, you know, did not go down well. And I can understand why... Romelu wanted to kind of redress the balance um, of the last six months because Inter certainly have you know, spoken on the record about this. You know, their chief executive, uh, Giuseppe Marotta, said uh, it was Romelu who wanted to leave. You know, we, we didn't want to sell him. Um, and I think that's only partially the truth um, because I, I, I think Inter were in a position where if an offer for uh, an offer of that value came in for a player of theirs, they had to accept it absolutely because their yeah, their Chinese owners Suning have been under significant financial strain. Into a position where they had to defer wage payments last year, um, they were seeking emergency financing. They'd already sold Ashraf Hakimi to Paris Saint Germain, and uh, I, I think the strange thing that that stood out to me from the interview was that Romelu, for the first time, spoke about. Uh, asking Inter Milan for a contract extension, you know, when he he already had a few years left on his contract to run. But it's like, read the room, Romelu. Um, your club is in grave financial difficulty. You're, you're already the highest earner at the club. The, 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 the probability of them being able to give you a contract extension is, 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 is very difficult indeed. Um, so... So you have this situation where, you know, he has a very close emotional connection with the club that saved his career, that he was perhaps ambivalent about leaving, but the club had to sell him and the fans don't appreciate that he left. Um, and yeah, as long as Inter in their current state, which is having scaled back, tried to become a more sustainable club, it's very, very difficult to foresee them being in a position to take Romelu Lukaku back, uh, either on a permanent basis through a signing or on loan because he almost doubled his wages going from, from, from Inter to Chelsea. So, I mean, given his, he was already the highest earner and they've had to bring that wage bill down. It's, it's difficult to see in the short term into being in a position to, to let him back. Do you think Thomas Tuchel's handled this well, Adam? Yeah. Um, I think the, I think the whole thing's hilarious. Um, I mean, you have a play, a play. <laughs> all right, all right. Let, let me let me let me let me yeah. let me flip that then. If you think the whole thing's like, is this just an absolutely prime example of football not being able to deal with 
honesty. I think to a certain extent. One of my favourite Lukaku facts is that he has a high school degree in public relations. Um, <laughs> and really, he's been his own press officer for the past month um, and decide... And, and yeah. you know, I, th- I think he'll have known to an extent that there'd have been a bit of a reaction. Um, he's also an amazing self-dramatist. Like, he has been throughout his career. You know, when he was at Everton, he was repeatedly doing these big interviews about um, wanting to leave the club at different stages. Then I remember there was a game where Everton played, was I think Everton against Chelsea um, at Goodison Park, where he was telling Chelsea staff in the tunnel, you know, one day I, I need to come back to Chelsea. I've got unfinished business. The club's in my heart. Then he had the opportunity to join Chelsea under Antonio Conte and decided to join Manchester United. Then he's at Manchester United and ultimately it didn't work out there and he went on strike there for a few days at the end as well so he has got a bit of form but yeah everyone's being a bit hypocritical journalists are really angry that he's spoken to somebody um chelsea are really angry that someone's being disloyal to a manager (laughs) which which is new ground so yeah i mean he said what he said as james has said he's not going to be able to go back to inter milan because of the financial situation i would say there's probably only paris saint-germain that would be able to buy him when you look across the continent, given Chelsea probably wouldn't sell to Manchester City um, or Man- and Manchester United, I don't think, would be buying him back. Um, so the market's pretty thin. And really, Tuchel's, I think, looked at that landscape, seen that his hand is pretty strong here. The fans like him. He's had, had success. And he can make a bit of an example of him. And I think he also probably realised playing against Liverpool, actually in those games against Liverpool, Manchester City, it might be better to go with a more dynamic forward than Lukaku um, in those games where you've got players like uh, Havertz and Mounts and Pulisic or Werner that can play in, in those advanced positions. People might disagree with that, but I don't think Tuchel would have looked at his team on Sunday and thought, God, we're so much worse off without Lukaku on the pitch that day. I thought what was quite interesting, Simon, after... After the match, and we're recording this before Tuchel does a, a pre-match uh, press conference uh, on Tuesday. But I thought it was quite interesting post-match after the Chelsea Liverpool game was he specifically referred to talking to senior players, gauging their opinions as well. That this isn't him sitting in his office making a decision. This is the players' team, the players' club, and he used them as a sounding board before making his decision. I asked him that question, Mark, because I, I found well that... Well done, Simon. Well really... done, Simon. Well done. <laughs> I, I, was, I was doing my bit, you know. Uh, um, I, I, I just found it fascinating that, that you know, because normally when a big decision is like this made, it, it, you just think it's manager only. You know, it's him showing who's boss, etc. But actually, he was sort of saying it's a bit of a democracy. He wanted to gauge the feelings of, of the dressing room. Now, I, I, I got to find out four of the players... They're pretty predictable names. Um, Jorginho, Azpilicueta, uh, Conte and Rudiger. Um, but I think it's quite significant that essentially the players also were backing the coach uh, and, and in terms of leading Lukaku out of the squad. I think that's quite significant. And why I think, just sort of touching on why this is, feels like it's been blown out of all proportion, it's not when it's Chelsea. Like player power has been the, the reason why Chelsea managers lose their job. It, it's of one after the other. You can think of examples. I mean, even, you know, the previous manager, Frank Lampard, had had issues um, where it looked like he was losing control of the dressing room. So Tuchel will know all this, that he's got to 
sort of stand up to it, it may be the thing that will come back. I can I almost feel like in the future, I can see myself at my laptop writing the read about where it all went wrong for Thomas Tuchel and that the Lukaku incident will be something I refer to because this is what happens at Chelsea. And that's why it's such a big story. When you have a big name player talking about a Chelsea coach, you instantly think this is a recipe for trouble. The difference in this instance is that at the moment, Thomas Tuchel has been thoroughly backed by the club. On that then, is it overdramatic to say that the two the two goals they got on Sunday to bring themselves back from two down to two, or forget the title race, but they're massively important actually in, 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 in the Thomas Tuchel story here because at two nil down... People, people are already talking in, in pubs or in, you know wherever. Are going? Well, hang on a minute. How on earth have Chelsea managed to implode over over the last six weeks? And it would have all have blended in together, wouldn't it? Exactly. And I mean, at the end of the day, um, results will always dictate what happens to a Chelsea manager. But clearly, the hierarchy always look at signs of things going awry, and the dressing dynamic is a key thing. They feed off. So if there was, if the players hadn't shown they were, it sounds a bit of a cliche, still playing for him on on Sunday, the way that they fought back without Lukaku, I just thought that was a huge comeback. The whole tone of this week is a big enough story as it is, but if Chelsea got thumped by Liverpool, which at one point it looked like they might be, um, suddenly the decision looks wrong. Everyone would be saying, you made the wrong call. You should have started Lukaku. And... Who knows, even the players might be questioned. Some of the players might be questioning the decision as well. For us all here now, if, if you're going forward and, and, and Lukaku is staying at Chelsea and so on and so forth, how, how, how James, do Chelsea get the Inter Milan Romelu Lukaku? <laughs> Hire Antonio Conte. No, um, that, 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 <laughs> that's not going to happen. A lot of people who comment on Romelu, they seem to think of him just as a target man. They look at his physique. When in actual fact, I tend to agree with him that he's a multi-dimensional striker, um, that he can do lots of things. Uh, I think towards, particularly in, in his time at Inter Milan, you know, he was someone who was seen as a creator, you know, as much as a finisher um, in that. And I, I, I think this is the curious thing about, uh, about Chelsea under Thomas Tuchel is it's a team that wants to, uh, to play high and press, uh, and I thought I thought Gary Neville quite flippantly um, said uh, he won't press, uh, he can't press from Ludukaki. Do you really think that a striker who plays under Antonio Conte for two years does not press or isn't prepared to run his ass off for the team? Yeah, I mean, I remember Lukaku saying, "Look, we learned to go into the red zone under Antonio Conte. He's, he's not going to tolerate anyone just being a passenger in his team." I think stylistically, you know, Conte was more prepared uh, to, for the team to play deeper um, and play in transition, uh, play on the break. And often he would create these kind of situations where Romelu would kind of come short, uh, either into midfield or even into his own half, link up with, his, with a fellow strike partner. And then, then he would turn and break and he would play face to goal, not back to goal. Uh, and he was incredibly effective at that. You think of the... The penalty he won against Villa, that's the kind of thing that you see, you saw Romelu doing all the time at Inter. Um, so it's just whether they can create similar situations like that, you know, whether they think 
do we play with with two strikers rather than just one? I mean, that certainly doesn't seem to be going with the grain at Chelsea over what's been successful for Tuchel with what two kind of players often playing off a striker or off another midfield player. But I think you've got this compromise where if you're Chelsea and you've spent this fee on the player, it has to be a success for you. He has to be the player who did what you didn't do last year, which is have someone who can score you 15, 20, 25 goals. But likewise, if you're Lukaku, you're coming into the European champions. <laughs> yeah, and, and you have to be able to adapt yourself. I, I think they have to meet in the middle, um, you know, and I think they were doing that. Uh, and Lukaku was, was, was already showing in the, what those last two games before the interview came out how effective he, he can be. One of the other interesting things in the interview that wasn't picked up on was how he said he needs to be provoked a lot of the time. You know, how his, his teammates at Inter Milan would rub him up the wrong way, knowing that it would get a reaction and he, that was what got the best out of him. So I think perhaps, you know, the reaction to his interview, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if he now goes on and, 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 and has a very good second half of the season. How did you get the best out of him, Adam? It's quite interesting. He said in the interview, didn't he, that the managers changed the system or the managers chosen a different system. That's the manager's job. Um, <laughs> it's the manager's job to choose the system. Um, you know, it was, but it was an interesting mindset in terms of actually showing us how star players and big name players now view it, that it should be some sort of consultation process rather than the manager actually just walking in and saying, this is how I want us to play today. Um, and the system's not so different, is it, to what it was before? It was, it's gone from a 3-4-1-2 uh, well, inter to a 3-4-2-1. Is that it, James? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, It's not exactly ripped up the tactical rulebook in, in, in doing it, so it was all a bit odd. Um, I think it's just a case of getting him, getting him back playing. He was actually playing okay over the past 10 days or so, scored a couple of goals. Um, I think Chelsea's, you know, Chelsea have clearly got an issue in terms of converting chances anyway. Um, so they need him in the team. Um, I think it'll just be a case of, I think it'd be interesting in terms of how he repairs his relationship with the Chelsea fans, because I think Chelsea fans, certainly from what I've seen, you know, from what you could tell by the atmosphere in the stadium at Stamford Bridge on Sunday, by what you could see online over the last few days, Chelsea fans have chosen Tuchel in this battle um, and Lukaku you know I think if he was to come back and have four or five displays that are a bit under par a bit leggy that don't seem you know completely focused and I can see that relationship becoming difficult but if he comes back in and scores goals that's how it'll get better Simon was he a Chelsea signing rather than a Tuchel signing because that is probably relevant going forward Look, Tuchel was on the phone to Romelu as part of the as part of the process to sign him. Um, of course, Thomas Tuchel would have loved Haaland. Who wouldn't? Um, that was probably his first choice. Um, you would sort of say, is Luke, does Lukaku tick all of Tuchel's boxes? No. But can can Lukaku make an improvement on this Chelsea side? Yes. I, I look, The club always wanted to sign Lukaku Again, uh, they showed that in 2017. It was the best player they could get at the time. Um, and it's up to Lukaku and Tuchel to make it work. The 
So the January transfer window is open. Newcastle United obviously expected to be the main spenders. Atletico Madrid and England fullback Kieran Trippier are expected to be the first signing. Chris Woff covers Newcastle for the Athletic and joins us now. How busy a month are you expecting, in all seriousness? I am expecting a very busy month. I mean, it's bizarre. I'm still getting used to the fact that I'm getting invited on here to talk about Newcastle likely to sign players in January, whereas usually this would be one of my quiet months of the year. But no, it's going to be uh, absolutely manic. It, or, it already has been. And I think that, I mean, ideally, Newcastle would like between four and six players. And uh, obviously, they haven't got anyone in through yet. Kieran Trippier, they're in advanced talks for. They're still trying to agree a fee with Atletico Madrid, but we expect that to happen. And beyond that, yeah, I think they, they want to cover basically almost across the pitch, certainly in defence, they want to strengthen. But it's the first time, really, other than Steve Bruce leaving and Eddie Howe arriving, that the Newcastle's new owners who arrived in early October have actually been able to influence what matters on the field. And obviously, given the position that they are in, they want to strengthen significantly and give Eddie Howe the best opportunity possible to keep them up. Who's put the list of signings together? It's been a bit of a complicated process, but Steve Nixon, uh, who was head of recruitment under the previous regime, is still there. And a lot of the players were identified by him previously. And so they're working off lists that he's done before, but also given the increased ambition of the new owner, that list has been supplemented a little bit with more ambitious targets who maybe previously weren't seen as being achievable. Then Eddie Howe, since he's arrived, has had uh, extensive talks with Steve Nixon and has brought in targets of his own. So Kieran Trippier is very much uh, Eddie Howe-led. It's the sort of play he wants. He's worked with him before at Burnley and fullbacks are very important to the way that Eddie Howe plays. And so it's it's a mixture of, of those two lists, but really they're the ones who are focused on it. But given the lack of, of a director of football in Newcastle still looking at. They've also uh, brought in Nicky Hammond, who was previously at Reading and Celtic, as basically he's there as almost a technical advisor for specifics on things like contracts, on market value, on how to pursue players and, and how to really work within the transfer market because there's a lack of football and expertise at senior level since Lee Charney left as managing director in November. Adam? Well, the good thing for Newcastle, they've only got two games in the Premier League this month. Um, which gives them, I think, probably a bit more leeway than maybe we thought originally. Because I think, you know, back in November, you're thinking, well, they need three or four players here by New Year's Day to get going. But actually, they've got they've got a bit of time on their hands. But it would obviously be massively valuable to Eddie Howe to have as long possible training with those players before they play Watford and Leeds, which is two huge games. For, for Newcastle they are getting better I think it's always difficult to tell. I mean they, they drew with Manchester United but Manchester United make everyone look yeah. um, new and improved so it might not be the, the, the best the best way of appraising it what do you think they're doing Chris in terms of that that big shadow of relegation when players say to them or agents say to them well what, what are we going to do at the end of the season if, we, if Newcastle go down if you're Kieran Trippier or a player that might ordinarily be in contention for a Champions League club, but they're having to be very creative with that. They are, and it's. I was told a few weeks ago by someone in recruitment that they thought this was one of the most complicated windows for any clubs they've ever known because in one sense you've got this idea that Newcastle are the quote-unquote richest club in the world. They have these new wealthy owners and that really people are going to come in and demand X, Y, and Z. Transfer fees is one fee. A lot of I've heard this from a lot of agents that basically there's one fee for any other club and then there's a different inflated fee for Newcastle when they come in but it's the same with players and and, and, and agents and they're looking for money but then they look at this situation and Newcastle have won once in the Premier League 19 games in they are really there's four teams cut drift now at the bottom and it's looking increasingly like maybe three from four who go down 
So that gives Newcastle a 25% chance in that sense of, of survival. And so, yeah, there are a lot of clauses being discussed or being floated. Some agents are saying if you sign a player for X, say it's 15 million, in, in the summer, if you were to go down, can you go for, say, 5 million? Can that be a release clause in the contract? There's also relegation release clauses in different ways. There's talk about wage reduction that, that actually some players wouldn't get as high a reduction as you expect or any at all. And so really it's making all these deals very, very complicated and taking longer to negotiate even than the normal circumstances. And Newcastle walking away from players and agents who go, if, if you sign him for 15 million now, can you go for five in the summer? Because that would be a massive red light to me if I was looking to sign a player. What, so, so why are you coming then? There's certain players who, who they've made tentative approaches for through their agents or whatever, and then just decided, right, that's not for us because clearly the player doesn't want to come. I think there are others where maybe they see it as sort of hardballing from the agent or the club and they have tried to negotiate and some of them are still interested. They're still interested in all that get shifted down the list or higher up the list. And that's the sort of situation they're in. They realise the word flexibility keeps coming back to me every time I speak to anyone about this month. Newcastle realise they have their top targets. They've got several players for each position on the list because they know how difficult a window it is. They know how difficult it is to convince players to come given the situation that they're in. A lot of players and a lot of agents have come back and saying, well, we'll wait until the summer and see where you are. Then we could be very, very interested. And that's, just, that's the issue. The position Newcastle are on the table really does make them less of an attractive proposition than they would have been otherwise. But you can understand it though, can't you? If you're Kieran Trippier, who has been part of Gareth Southgate's tournament squads, and then you're taking that risk by leaving Atletico Madrid to go to Newcastle, I mean, it's a very, I'm sure it'll be a very handsomely rewarded risk that he'd be choosing to take. But it's not, it's not unfeasible at all that he finds himself entering a World Cup season playing Barnsley away. Well, actually, if Barnsley might go down, maybe maybe Peterborough away, I they might Pete, go down I as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, either way, there's some there's some not you know not very very idyllic places or stadiums that Kieran Trippier might find himself starting next season in. Um, and Darren McCanton is now going to be coming on to me complaining about that portrayal of Peterborough. Um, but you can understand why you want that protection um, if you're in Trippier's position. You're saying, you know, can I, I'm taking a chance on you, but I do also need to think about myself here and make sure that, you know, I've been a loyal servant to Gareth Southgate. I'm clearly a part of his squad general thinking that I can still make it in. Yeah, I mean, for someone like Trippier, there, there are all, obviously all those reservations, but Newcastle also see it a different way. They also see the benefits. If you can convince Kieran Trippier to come, early in the windows they're trying to do, then the hope is that that will also convince other players because a lot of the conversations I've had with agents have been, well, we quite like the idea of everything you're trying to do. We're just not sure what other business are you going to do? And obviously within negotiations, Newcastle are not going to say to a different agent, we're going to sign X, Y, and Z as well. But once those players start to arrive, once they see the players of Kieran Trippier's standing, as you say, someone who started the Euro 2020 final, someone who won La Liga last season, if he's willing to come to to Newcastle, then the hope is that that will also convince potentially some other players who may be sitting on the fence a little bit to come and take that risk, which it will be a risk. There's undoubtedly a risk. Who's the most ambitious name on their list of targets, do you think, Chris? Well, I think one of the most ambitious is someone who, uh, obviously, our colleague David Ornstein wrote about Newcastle's interest in to begin with, and that's Sven Botman at Lille. And it's not in terms of he isn't the world-renowned star that maybe he, he may become in the future, but I think it's the potential. And, and that a lot of clubs across Europe have looked at him, AC Milano, someone who uh, links significantly to him. And at the moment, 
Uh, he is Newcastle's top target as a centre-back. I think there's a realisation that it's ambitious and it, it may not happen. Lille are playing hardball on it. Botman, I think, is not completely against the idea. I think, again, he sees that, that, the, that he likes the idea of growing with Newcastle, of this potential of building, but also sees the potential reservations of it. But if they were to get someone like Trippier, maybe that convinces someone like Botman and, and a player of that standing, someone who's come through the Ajax Academy, very highly rated. But, I mean, they're looking for players all over the pitch. And as I say, they've got, they've got, they've got various different uh, lists for each position. So really, it, it, an ideal month for Newcastle would be to get to the, the end of the month almost with an entirely new back four. They certainly want at least one, if not two, centre-backs, perhaps a left-back as well. They would like a midfielder, although given Joe Linton's performances in recent weeks, that perhaps isn't the priority it once was, although they have an issue with Isaac Hayden's out for two months injured. And then since Callum Wilson uh, limped off just before Christmas, that what they ideally need as well is a centre forward. They need, they need someone to come in and score goals. Before, what I was told is they were looking for a sort of versatile forward, maybe a younger person who could grow. But now, if Wilson's going to be out for a matter of weeks, if not months, it certainly looks like he's going to be out for the majority of January, if not beyond. Then they would like a centre forward, someone given Callum Wilson's injury record, who can actually score goals that will keep them up. And finally, this isn't you know, when it's the transfer window. This isn't the uh, the sexiest question or the sexiest area to focus on. But have they started spending money elsewhere aside from bringing in players? Bearing it, bearing in mind the infrastructure of that club has has been allowed to, um, well. I was going to say rot, but that's a bit harsh. Allowed to, what 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 word would you use, Chris? Stagnate. Stagnate. I think is the there word you go. Very good. Very good. Very good. Um, yeah. Well, certainly during Mike Ashley's time, very little money was spent on the infrastructure. The training ground is is a is a. It's been a big concern for a long while for Newcastle fans. The, in terms of the really extensive expenditure, which we expect in the sort of medium to long term, that hasn't started yet. There's been a big review conducted, which is still ongoing. And I think wisely part of the the really expensive rebuild that they're going to take place, they want a sporting director in place first. And as of yet, that search is still ongoing. Dan Ashworth at Brighton Hove Albion is someone they are speaking to and among various candidates for that role. And really, they want someone who is going to, to, to decide the direction Newcastle are going in as a club before they build and put in plans for place for a new training ground, maybe improve the stadium, improve other areas. But they, they've spoken to every single department at the club. They've already started to make some changes, although not really throwing money at it yet. They've tried to increase... Um, relationship with the foundation, with all the areas of the club. And so really there's a positivity around everything and there's a lot of plans potentially in place, but really the focus has been on the short term and keeping Newcastle in the Premier League. And then once a sporting director is in place, regardless of which division Newcastle are in next season, that's when we'll start to see the really long-term expensive plans put into place. Okay, I'm sure we will talk an awful lot over the next month. I expect to be on several times. Yes, almost certainly. Well, it'd be a good window if we are. If I get the end of window and I'm coming on to say Newcastle have only signed one player, then I think uh, alarm bells will be ringing. So. Thanks, Chris. And you will be on a lot, actually, because the Athletic are recording daily transfer shows during the January window, bringing you exclusive news and insights on any deals from the best newsroom in the industry. Did you know that, Adam? You work, you work in the best newsroom in the industry? News to me. Uh, the <laughs> <laughs> the only place you can hear these podcasts is on the Athletic app or by subscribing to the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Start your free trial today.
Right then, Adam, let's have our uplifting chat about Manchester United. You were actually at Old Trafford covering the game for The Athletic and then involved in all the Q&A stuff with, with fans on the app uh, uh, as well, which was... So the whole thing was utterly depressing, I'm guessing. I was staggered last night by how poor Manchester United were in, in every facet of their game. The most, the most basic passes, five-yard yeah. passes are going astray. I mean, there was one counter-attack where... Mason Greenwood, who was probably the liveliest of, of the front four, um, sort of broke on the halfway line, did quite well initially with the spin. Then he just had to side, you know, a side foot pass to the right for Wan-Bissaka who was running on, played it behind Wan-Bissaka. Ronaldo, I think, then chased it down, kept it in play with a little back heel. And Wan-Bissaka then just crossed it straight out of play. I mean, it was you would not see a worse counter-attack in a Sunday league game. I know we sometimes use Sunday League as like a, an extreme example, but y- you wouldn't. It was so dysfunctional. The, the, the most basic things they're finding very, very difficult to do. Um, I do have some doubts about some of the selections and calls being made by Ralph Ragnick. Um, I think you know, clearly it would be wrong to, you know, to expect a drastic turnaround inside a month from a new coach um, but this is you know he's basically had a 60 minute honeymoon period against Crystal Palace and since then it's been it's been really poor but I'm quite confused by some of his selections so you had for example against Wolves on Monday night players like Nemanja Matic Aaron Wan-Bissaka Luke Shaw coming back in playing for a second consecutive game on the basis of what was really a pretty ordinary performance against Burnley in which they won and then keeping their place um, Thread who was probably the best player and the best performance under Rangnick against Crystal Palace appears to now be out of favour. Um, last night was interesting as well because all the usual suspects that supporters, myself as a journalist, have blamed, you know, Harry Maguire, Paul Pogba, uh, Bruno Fernandes, Marcus Rashford. A lot of people have been calling them for them not to be in the starting lineup for a while. They weren't last night and it didn't help. And really the only one that he's not dropped yet is, is the big one. Um, and that's Cristiano Ronaldo. And, and I thought there was a very interesting comment in his in his post-match interview when he was asked about bringing off Mason Greenwood, which was booed by the fans at Old Trafford. At Greenwood, I mean, out of a very, very bad bunch, was probably United's best player at that, at that stage. Um, and he said, well, I had a choice to either bring off uh, Mason or Eddie. So either either Greenwood or Cavani. And I listened to that and read that and thought, well, you had other choices that you could have brought off. And Ronaldo has saved United many, many times this season. And we can talk about the influence of him behind the scenes and what that has affected. But if he's having a bad game, he should he should be on a list of players to be substituted, shouldn't he? I mean, that's how that's how football works. Otherwise, you've got a massive problem. Uh, and there was another option as well in Jadon Sancho, yeah. um, who, who was really poor on the night. The other thing is, Ronaldo's 37. He started three, played three full games in the space of a week. I know he's obviously got a fantastic physique, but you know, it wouldn't have been outrageous to, to, to replace him, I don't think. That, and I agree with you, when I heard that you know, live in the press conference at the time, it was okay. He's just said something. It was a sort of a stop and think. Okay, so but it may have just been he was thinking. You know, Cavani maybe. You know, because he's also also just coming back into the team that he would also be a contender for that. But really, it did just seem like 
in his head, Ronaldo couldn't be taken off in that game. I'm not sure why that would be. I think Greenwood was unlucky to be taken off last night. It was really unpopular in the stadium as a decision. Um, he was unlucky to be the first attacker substituted at Newcastle at half-time last week as well. And, you know, it's hard to resist the, the, the conclusion that he spared more famous names, you know, more established names, that, that decision. Um, he kept Fernandes and Ronaldo on too long at Newcastle as well. Um, I, I think we are reaching the point where, you know, you're right, Ronaldo has saved United at times this season, but I think it's also fair to say how many problems are being caused or not necessarily not caused is too is too harsh how many problems are involved in the fact that he is starting games for Manchester United the fact that they probably have to play with two strikers which meant they were very short in midfield um, against Wolves on on Monday night was a problem but but there's an inconsistency at the moment in Ralph in Ralph Rangnick's strategy um the only consistency seems to be he want, he talks he's talking a lot about pressing. We know that he wants pressing. Every coach wants pressing. Every coach wants their teams closed down, right? But what's confusing me is he starts in the first few weeks with this narrow four-two-two-two where you have these two number tens. Then against Burnley, it became like a, a straightforward four-four-two where Greenwood and Sancho they were hugging the touchline against both last night and also against Burnley. And then at half time last night, he then goes to a three at the back. And has Sancho almost playing as a left wing back, and Juan Bissaka as a right wing right wing back. And when you add to that, you know these sort of tweaks of personnel, like I said about Fred and the fullbacks who he seems to fancy at the start, Dallo and Tellez. Now Juan Bissaka and Shaw seem to be back in. It there's an inconsistency there that if I'm in that dressing room, I'm looking at him a bit and thinking he doesn't really seem to trust that many of us at all, and I'm not sure. I entirely trust whatever vision he's he's doing because he keeps changing it. You wonder how much the players are trusting each other at the moment as well, actually, because they they are starting to to make the comment. And Luke Shaw was very revealing after the game. All the players are not together. Yeah, Luke Shaw is a great. Well, probably not for United fans or the club at times, but he's a great interviewee after matches. Yeah, um, he's very. You know, he's often quite loose in in terms of what he says and. He was saying things like, he was reminding players that they have to work hard, that they have to be motivated, that the intensity has to be there, um, saying they weren't together. He said, maybe it looked like an easy game for Wolves. I mean, it did. But remarkable things for a player who has been involved in that game to instantly be concluding. Um, And if he's saying that publicly, you can rest assured that there'll be far worse things being said. Um in the dressing room but you but you can tell you, you can watch Manchester United and see that it is just a collection of individuals um, there's very little in terms of there's very few relationships there's no team pitch. spirit there's absolutely no team spirit there yeah but it's even you know how many at least you know there were periods under Solskjaer weren't there where you could see Luke Shaw and Marcus Rashford had developed a bit of a relationship yeah. on, on the left wing um that McTominay and Fred and Bruno it sort of worked for a little bit as you know the two pivots and number 10 I'm not saying it was fantastic um, but it's really disparate at the moment and it was really noticeable to me last night when United fell one goal down the complete absence of, of a response and, and what happened was you just had individuals actually trying too hard which I think has really been the massive undoing of Bruno Fernandes' season 
you know, I think there's some players you might look at and think, oh, he's not bothered. I think with with Fernandez, he's got a saviour complex and he's yeah. trying to rest. It's almost like he's trying to single-handedly rescue United at times. I think Ronaldo's a bit similar in that respect as well. I mean, it's very difficult to understand really how it's reached this point. But with Ronaldo, I mean, after Wolves scored, he was the most agitated being all night. He was gesturing to get the ball back to the halfway line. He was, you know, trying to G up the players but there hadn't been any of that urgency no. for the whole game. And, I, and for the life of me, I cannot understand how Manchester United start games as slowly as they do. And this has been a pattern going on over a year now, probably back to the start yeah. of last season. They don't, and Luke Shaw said after the game, there was no motivation, there was no intensity. Was, why? Why? Um, I don't, I, I'm conscious I'm becoming like Manchester United fan TV here, but um, but it's, it's really, it, I think, there were fans coming away last night thinking, you know what, that's actually just what we are. Yeah. That's what the club yeah. is at the moment. And it's, you know, it's disappointing. You can't really blame the owners on this occasion, I don't think, apart from the decision-making. I think the investment has been there over the last few years. They've just invested terribly. And if you want more of uh, of that uh, misery and, and cynicism, then uh, the specific United podcast, Talk of the Devils, is out now. <laughs> Right, that's it. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to The Athletic and get a 33% discount by heading to theathletic.com slash football pod. And I'm back on Thursday with the Business of Sport podcast. The Athletic.